Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, another podcast. I'm excited to get this one going. How's everything? Things are going well. Me too. Um, took us a, a, a hot second to wrangle down Ryan Holiday for the show, but we've finally got him. Uh, so today will be a great conversation. Before we get to it, um, if you want to support the Growth Equation, the podcast, and our work more broadly, uh, the best way to do it is to check out our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash the growth equation. So you all know by now, we pride ourselves on being 100% member funded and independent. Uh, we do this because so many of the organizations, companies throwing us sponsorship money and offers tend to be from products and services that are big on quote unquote hacks and quick fixes for health, performance, well-being and we don't really believe that those things exist. We think the only way to perform at your best in a sustainable manner is to stay on the path and do the stuff that's simple, not easy, the stuff that we talk about, the stuff that you'll hear Ryan talk quite a bit about today. So again, you want to support us, get all kinds of great stuff, a book club, a mastermind group, sign copies of our books, guides to resilience, training guides to sustainable peak performance. It's really a hell of a value for just $5 a month. Head over to Patreon, www.patreon.com slash the growth equation. And with that, let's jump into this very deep and insightful conversation with Ryan Holiday, who you'll hear about his latest book, Courage is Calling, but more so how Ryan approaches living on the internet without losing yourself, the motivation to continue to write, how his or what his processes are that allows him to achieve at a high level while not going crazy, and also the role of running and exercise and keeping him grounded and much more. So let's head over to the conversation. Ryan, it's great to be talking to you. Welcome to the Growth EQ podcast. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. So We've got a lot on tap for today. We're going to go deep onto your new book, Courage is Calling. Um, but before we get there, a huge part of what we do at The Growth EQ is help people out with their foundational habits and practices in their life. And something that we think is just absolutely key, even if you're not an athlete, is having some sort of physical practice. Uh, we talk about how if you're a parent, if you're a coach, if you're a writer, an educator, an investor, you name it, physical practice is a part of your job. And I know that you uh, view physical practice as a part of your job too. Could you walk us through what that looks like for you and how that impacts you as a writer? Yeah, of course. I, I, would, I would totally agree with the premise. Um, the idea being that you want to have something that you can win at every day um, that's in your control. And then I think something that challenges you outside the mold of what you're actually doing professionally each day. So, you know, for a writer, you're sort of sitting down, it's sedentary. So I think having a physical practice is even more important than, I don't know if I was uh, doing some sort of physical, it, it's like almost as if, if I had a very physical profession, you would want some sort of relaxed, still 
practice like reading or meditating or, or, you know, um, yoga or something like that, 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 that forces you to be still in a different way. Um, but for me, it's usually running. Sometimes it's swimming, sometimes it's biking. Um, uh, but I, but I usually do some, some run every day. Um, lately I've been doing it in the morning, uh, with my kids, uh, they're sort of pushing it on the weight limit on the stroller, but it, but it's sort of part of the practice. So this morning we, we did about four and a half miles and then we walked another half mile or so, um, we were outside. It was early. We watched the sun come up. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just for me, a really grounding way to start, uh, the day. And then, um, it has the bonus of like sort of family time as well. The way, the way I've been doing it lately. So what you're describing sounds very like the, the, there is no means to an end thinking the end is just moving your body. Um, do you ever run for time or track miles? I know you're a big swimmer. Do you ever compete or is it something that now is just about like getting out, using your body in some kind of vigorous way? Yeah. The, the activity is the, is the, the, the goal. I have deliberately kept any sort of competition out of it. Now, like I'm, I'm aware of when I'm doing it fast or slow, uh, obviously there's times where I feel like pushing the distance, um, and every once in a while I might have some sort of goal with, with a specific time or I'm trying to push this or, you know, but, but more likely than not, if there's any sense of urgency to what I'm doing, it's only, uh, or competition or whatever. It's, it's that like, I have to be home by a certain time because there's some other thing that I do, but I, I don't do any competition. I've just found that like, I have enough competition in my life through my work um, that sort of trying to win at my hobby is not, uh, it's not on my list of priorities. So we have a lot of runners who listen to this, uh, podcast, Ryan. So I'm going to go deep on this in a second, uh, for a second. How do you keep that balance of like running is such a time-based kind of sport and activity, you know, how fast you're running, you know, if you ran today faster on your, you know, course or loop or whatever have you, than you did yesterday. How do you like get that enjoyment of pushing yourself of like having that freedom to explore run, but at the same time, like not drifting into this winning at your hobby thing, which I think is something that a lot of people, when they get into kind of a uh, time-based activity, succumb to, especially in our kind of modern GPS watch you yeah. know, gadget world. Yeah, um, you know, look, do, doing it with the kids has obviously sort of forced that function for me in a lot of ways because, like, every day uh, I'm going a little bit slower because they're a little bit heavier. Um, <laughs> You know, so it's like when I started this with my first son, when he was, you know, a few months old, uh, it was basically the weight of the stroller plus this tiny person. And now it's a, a five-year-old and a two and a half-year-old and a, you know, an already pretty heavy stroller. Um, and, and I, when I'm running at my, my house in, in the country, it's, it's usually, and which I have done almost exclusively for the last two years because of the pandemic. Um, on top of that, it's like a, pretty crummy dirt road. Uh, so it's kind of just blown that concern out of me, which I, I did have for a very long time. I mean, I ran competitively in high school. Um, I was, uh, you know, I have an Apple watch. I, I, di I do care about those things to a certain degree. Um, 
But I think the big thing for me is like, I feel worse if I don't do it. So the fact that I've done it, I've already won. So whether I'm doing it, you know, at, at a mile PR or not, has just become much less of a concern for me. And I'd rather just do it for longer than to try to get it over with quickly, if that makes sense. That does. And it kind of, although slightly different, it kind of reminds me of um, maybe keeping you grounded in the same way um, that keeps you kind of sane on the internet. So I guess my follow-up to this non-related question is, how do you how do you keep sane on the internet as a public figure and not drift to your, towards your audience, just kind of like you described there of not drifting towards that goal that that Apple Watch or whatever feedback is giving you? No, it's it's not really a crazy uh, connection at all, because I would say um, as I've done this sort of writing on the Internet thing for a long time and then obviously writing uh, books, uh, you know, there are ways to quantify whether it, it it is succeeding, like in quotes, right? How, how many copies you're selling? What's your subscriber growth? How many views is it getting? Um, and for the most part, um, I don't look at or think about those metrics in any way. I don't think my site has analytics on it, or I don't know how to check them if they do. Um, I've all but stopped checking uh, how how my book sales are doing. You know, like I might be aware on a specific launch, like how many we did in the first week, or um, you know, I might have some vague sense of, uh, for instance, like. Uh, to, to be transparent about, I was just looking at this uh, on our Daily Stoke Instagram account. I, we were having a big conversation about the numbers, not because I'm like tracking the numbers day to day, but because I was a tad concerned that the numbers historically were trending in the wrong direction. And did that mean that we were doing something wrong? Like there's some some mistake or we weren't optimized for, for something in some way. So I, I guess I'm vaguely aware of them. I also have like people on my team who are more responsible for them, but I, I generally find that I do better work and it is more important, even if it did, you know, slightly decrease the quality of the work. I am a happier human being, the more unaware I am of the numbers as a whole. I guess my intuition is more or less aligned, like as, as the compass, it gets me sort of, historically has gotten me in the direction that I need to go. So I'm not like checking today, our sales up or down. I remember when I first started writing, um, my, when my first book came out, there was this tool called Novel Rank. And it was uh, a website you could go to and you could enter in your ISBN of a book. And it would tell you not just how your Amazon rank was and how it was doing historically, but it would tell you how it was doing in all the different Amazons. So like Amazon Germany and Amazon UK and Amazon Mexico and Amazon Canada. And I probably checked that website like 10,000 times in the few years it was up. Um, and, and then one day it like went away. Like the guy stopped updating it or there, there's some issue where he like couldn't do it anymore. And it went away. And I, suddenly there was no replacement for this like sort of habit that I'd built, like checking it every time I, you know, open a new tab, my browser or whatever. Um, and I was just amazed at how much, you know, what, what a gift of time I was given back and how much generally happier I was not being aware of what the number was. 
that I just sort of have made a policy where I, I don't check those things. Do you still feel urges to Ryan and like, yeah, you just kind of have to ride those urges now, or is it something where you're totally at peace? And I think something that folks that are listening might be wondering, I know I certainly am is well, easy to say you've had a number one New York times bestseller. Like, you know, you reach a certain point where it's like, if you haven't arrived now, then you're never going to arrive. Um, you think that you'd have this same kind of discipline around checking had you not had a mega success in the past? Well, I actually think the fact that that how I came to, to hit number one for the first time was part of not caring about this. So um, I remember when, so my first book came out and it didn't hit the New York Times list and it hit the Wall Street Journal list, even though it sort of sold enough for both. So there was a, a certain sense of like, okay, this thing is like rigged. It doesn't, it's not representative of success or not. So that was a sort of first bit of decoupling. And then I remember that the when The Obstacle is the Way came out, again, it sold enough copies to hit both and it didn't. Um, and The Obstacle is the Way did not hit any bestseller list for the first five years that it was it was out. And I don't still to this day, not exactly sure why that was. Um, it eventually did. And, and it's it's a, it's popped on a, a number of times, but the book is sold very, very well without ever hitting one of those lists. So over time, sort of just becoming aware that the it's like, like, I don't really compare myself to people who went to Ivy League schools because like, I also understand like what a game that is. And it's not a game I'm playing. So I don't exactly go around comparing myself to the people who are winning said game. So um, when when Stillness came out, I, I had a sense it was going to be my best selling book because I'd been given some of the numbers as they were going in. But I remember I was in Los Angeles. I was on book tour for it. And uh, um, you know the, the time difference is everything on publishing is on the East Coast. So I woke up and I could see there was a bunch. My, my sort of rule is that I don't check my phone in the morning. Um, I sort of do what I need to do first and then I check it. Um, but I'd, I'd had to set my alarm on my phone because I was traveling. And so I sort of woke up and I could see, the, you know, the, pick up the phone and turn off the alarm. And I could see there's like a bunch of texts from my agent. And I, I, I knew, okay, this is news about the list. Either it's a bunch of texts consoling me about how I, I got screwed again, or it's a bunch of texts congratulating me about how I did well again. And I remember just going like, okay, um, so it is what it is. Um, I'm not going to ruin my day by checking this. And I'm also not going to distract or disrupt my day by checking it, like good news or bad news. And I just remember I went and I worked out. I swam. I, so I was staying at the Los Angeles Athletic Club. I swam. I came back. I did my journaling. I went to breakfast. And then I checked. And it was it was actually great news. It was it was that it had hit number one. But But there was a certain sort of breakthrough there for me, less about hitting number one and being like the I actually do care less about the results than I would have at other times in my career. And I've tried to sort of carry that forward um, because I find, again, if it's bad news, it does it definitely doesn't help. But then when it's good news, I sort of get distracted. It's very exhilarating and exciting and fun. But then I'm still like uh, just no, no good, like no use. Uh, for whatever I should be doing that day. And so I've just tried to, to disconnect from it as much as possible. I love it. I can uh, very acutely appreciate that. So I know you know this, Ryan, because I, I emailed you and some listeners know, but 
we had a whole big push to get groundedness on the list. Yeah. And I'd say that like 10 to 15% was ego, maybe even 20%, but about 80% was the story that I told myself um, with some help from my publisher that like, if it gets on the list, it'll sell more copies and it helps create a big snowball, blah, blah, blah. And the book sold 6,000 copies. And there were some issues with reporting from one of the distributors and long story short, the book didn't get on the list. And I was so bummed. Steve knows this for like a day. And then it kind of becomes the most freeing thing there is because you're like, fuck it. The book's not on the list. Like time to get back to work. Guess it's not going to sell itself. Now, who knows if it actually would have sold itself anyways. Um, but I, I, I feel I still check the numbers a lot more than you. I'm, I'm not that Zen yet, but um, I feel a lot more free of giving a shit about the list, having gone through this experience. Um, yeah. And, and so look, that resonates I, a lot. When I do check, like every once in a while, I'll be like, I'll be on Amazon and something will pop up. I'll be like, oh, let me see how the reviews are doing. And, uh, you know, it just, I never, I never leave that experience feeling better about myself. It never really helps me around the house. It never helps me write better. Um, and so, you know, I, I just try to, to be as, Art of, like obviously the the real you said Zen the real Zen thing would be able to or the Stoic thing would be able to 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 see it and not be affected by it right sure. um, to 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 check the rank and be indifferent to it as it's happening but I've I found that that's not possible so I just try to create some sort of selective ignorance as much as possible um, and uh, you know it 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 largely works I'm not perfect at it but. I think sure. something as specific as the the bestseller list, like if look, if we're just going to stack up who sold the most copies, at least I have some interest in that because that's a largely objective metric, right? I think the problem with something like the bestseller list or the problem with a lot of the things we compare ourselves to people against is that you're comparing apples and oranges or you are you are pretending that it is an objective uh, mm -hmm. meritocratic outcome when actually it's a, it's a rigged or um, filtered outcome. And so mm -hmm. knowing as, as you experience, unfortunately, that like you can do everything right and still not get what you quote unquote deserve, it does help devalue that as a thing that I'm striving for. At least if it's like, hey, I'm trying to get a five minute mile, like I control whether that happens or not. If somebody else is controlling the stopwatch and they do a bad job of it and are notoriously biased, you know, suddenly valuing yourself on that goal or measuring yourself on that goal, it, you, you understand that it's not a good idea. Yeah, I love it. It also links back to physical practice and why in, in a world like ours, where there is a fair amount of subjectivity, it's so freaking good and nourishing for the soul to have something that is super concrete, where it's either 459 or 501. And it doesn't matter, you know, if the judge liked your book or liked your mile, the time is the time. Uh, I want to just pivot a little bit and ask you a quick question around routines. And rather than have you go through routines, I'm sure you've done that on a million podcasts. I'm just going to make a statement for the listeners that Ryan is a man of routines. And some of your most popular tweets are, I don't eat until noon because I write better on an empty stomach. I take my kids out. I don't check the list as you just talked about and so on. Do you feel like you have to exert a lot of psychic energy and discipline to stick to these things or have these things just become habit? Like, do you still struggle to have this sort of, um, 
I don't want to use the word rigid because it's not, but I, yeah, it, it feels like a very disciplined life. And does it still feel that way to you? Or have you settled into some of these things? I mean, to me, that is the main selling point of routines and ritual is that you do them uh, enough times and it becomes kind of a second nature. It just like for me, the, the harder thing is on mornings or days when um, something has disrupted the routine. I wake up and it's too cold to take the kids outside or I wake up and, you know, I have to do this thing early in the morning. It's like a doctor's appointment or something. Those are, those are uh, harder for me to deal with because it requires a different kind of willpower. It requires not just the willpower of flexibility, but the sort of um, having to go do this thing that you don't have days or weeks or months or years of, uh, of sort of uh, momentum behind. So to me, the routine is, is uh, easier than, than the not routine. So it might seem like a lot of work, um, but, and, and it was, you know, each time you had to add one of those habits in, uh, but, but it gets easier as you go. So I want to pivot now to your latest book, Courage is Calling. And I'm going to do that by telling a story that listeners will know, and I'll keep it the short version. But long story short, um, I started reading your book, Ryan, just at the tail end as I was finishing up a, um, the last part of a whistleblowing thing that I did, gosh, nine, 10 years ago that dragged on until literally a couple of weeks into your book. And I was reading it well about to go do the last difficult part of this whistleblowing journey where I saw something that, that wasn't right in sport and spoke up, reported it to authorities, and then 10 years later still went through it. So first off, I want to say thanks for, for writing it because it resonated in that moment so much um, and helped a lot in that moment. But what I really want to dive into is the last chapter of the book, which tells about your own experience um, with American Apparel. And what really struck me, and I'm wondering if we can dive deep on this, is you talked about standing up at first, but it was stopping your participation in the scheme and not actually preventing it. Yeah. And what I'm wondering is if you can talk about a little bit on how do we make that that jump because I think a lot of people now are really are are getting better at well I'm not going to take participate in this I'm going to tweet about this thing that you know is unfair unethical etc but don't take that next step towards prevention doing and I know your entire book is about this but I feel like sure. that moment is is crucial yeah and and I I think it's important when we talk about courage that we don't you know, just mean, you know, running onto a battlefield or into a burning building. It's also just like, hey, I, I don't think this is right. And I'm uh, going to tell people about it, or I'm not going to participate in it, or um, I'm going to sort of do things. I'm going to do this harder thing uh, instead of this easier thing. Um, I guess what I was trying to say in that story in, in the back of the book, it's sort of, sort of a book. The book is set up with sort of all these sort of inspiring moments about courage. And, and um, I just, I felt weird sort of that reflecting on me uh, indirectly um, 
or undeservedly. So I wanted to sort of end the book with like um, something very real, um, sort of grounded in my own experience. And so I was talking about my experiences when I was the director of marketing in American Apparel, which was this wonderful company in many ways, and then a deeply screwed up and, and twisted company in other ways. And I, I worked there for most of my early 20s, and I really struggled with sort of the things that were going on there. Um, this sort of tension as you're talking about between like, well, what am I guilty of myself versus uh, what am I just sort of complicit in allowing to happen as being a, a sort of a bystander or or whatever. And and what I was trying to show in that in that section was um, the the owner of the company asked me to do a thing that I I was not interested in doing. But but then I didn't stop it from happening. I it still happened because I mean he's the owner of the company and can do whatever he wants. Um, but I, but I, I the reasons that I didn't get more involved, you know, it struck me as I've gotten older and further from it how poorly those things have held up. Right, like that. Well, I didn't want to get fired. And it's like, but why were you? why would you want to work at a place that would fire you for doing that? Right. Or, you know, um, uh, you know, I did my part by saying this, that, or the other. And it's like, but it, was that the end of your obligations? Um, and so I was, just, I don't really have a good answer, but I was wrestling with all of that because this it's, it's not as clean and simple as people maybe think it is. And um you know, I think the idea is to get better at it as you go. So I love that, that what you just said there, it's not as clean and simple. And in reading this book, like the nuance of people aren't morally good, bad, we're not courageous or crap or cowards. Like there's a ton of nuance in there that I think is often left off in this conversation. And even this nuance of um, the right versus wrong thing or standing up and blowing the whistle or not like it's all this kind of jumbled mess that I think uh, you kind of elucidate there and, and you have to wrestle with. And I think in a lot of ways that lowers the bar and makes courage something that is is um, capable for everyone to do instead of seeing it as this high bar like going in a battlefield, like sacrificing everything. Yeah. You don't have to be Daniel Ellsberg either. Right. It's not always these sort of hugely high stakes things. It could just be like, Hey, I, this isn't, uh, this isn't what I want for my life. So I'm going to go sort of do this other thing, or it's the courage to, to sort of be the person that you want to be, or, or it's the courage to, um, you know, to, to sort of put yourself out there, uh, for something. Um, but yeah, I think we, we we're and we're reckoning with this as a society right now, like very few of our heroes are perfect. Um, I was just reading about, uh, Oscar Schindler, uh, from Schindler's list, you know, the guy that, that saved, uh, uh, like hundreds of Jews from, from the concentration camps. And it was like, uh, apparently he was also like a notorious womanizer and, uh, and not exactly like a great human being in, in some other ways. And you notice, oh, okay, yeah, these people aren't perfect. But what matters is, you know, sort of on the big things, did you get them right? 
or are you working towards getting them right? Um, and I, I feel like that's the journey that I'm on. Like, I feel like I fell short there. I mean, I'm, I can look myself in the mirror as to what happened. Um, I don't feel like I uh, did anything that I regret exactly, but I feel like I came up short. Um, but I feel like having done that, I have grown from that experience and have stepped up in other ways. Uh, and, and that's really what I wanted the book to leave people with. So I'm going to rewind up in, in my brain six years ago, maybe five years ago. And I remember thinking that, wow, like this is right when I first started to get to know you and, and really understand your work, Ryan, that this guy is a conservative thinker that I really respect. And we might have some differences that relate to guns and whatnot, but like this, like this guy is smart and I respect him and he seems morally and ethically solid. He seems like he has skin in the game on the things that he write about, excuse me, that you write about, that he writes about. Okay. Three years ago, well, all these Republican senators and Congress people that tweet about and that read Ryan's books, like they're reading Ryan. So everything will be okay. You know, like they're, they're so into obstacle is the way your ego is the enemy. Of course, they'll step up and say something. Of course, they'll do something as Trump goes from crazy to batshit crazy. And from what I can see, it just hasn't really happened. And we're not going to name names. There's no point to that. But just knowing that, like, you've been in the room with some of these people and these people claim to love your work. What do you make of this? Like, are you, does it? cause you despair? Do you, is it like, I, yeah, I'm just going to stop. Cause clearly sure. I struggle with this. I don't have the words for it. Well, but, I, but I I'll would... say one more thing. I literally had this track in my head that like, Oh, such and such Senator is a big fan of Ryan holiday. So I'm sure they'll get this right. And then they just didn't. I think, I think uh, there's, there's a bunch of things going on there. So one, I would say um, not, not all of them have fall, fallen short. Again, we don't need to sort of talk about names, but, but there are, there are certainly some people who have who have read the books that I'm that I uh, have a relationship with that I that I feel like have have largely sort of stepped up or, or made some sort of uh, courageous stands or decisions, and then other ones that that, that definitely haven't. Um, and this this goes to what um, Steve was talking about, where this is complicated, right? So, um, and and it does give me some insight into. Uh, you know, I think some of the rationalizations that other people have, which is, you know, do you do you sort of burn the relationship by calling someone out, or do you maintain the relationship uh, and try to uh, try to to sort of privately lobby or have influence? Um, and so, so I'm, I'm there's a tension there that I that I haven't quite uh, figured out, but but I, I share with you the sort of disappointment that people sort of. Um, they, they talk a good game. They study these things. They, they, they claim to be aligned with certain sort of ancient principles or ideas. And then when it comes time to making a decision that was uh, contrary to their short-term interests, but clearly in the long-term interests of the nation or of 
uh, the rule of law, they, they fell short. And I, as I've, I feel immensely disappointed and distressed and perplexed by it. Um, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure what to do about it. Um, it's certainly been helpful to me as a writer and a student of uh, psychology, right? This sort of allows me, I think, to make what I write better because I, I now have sort of access to some of this thinking or some of the, the sort of um, it, some insights into like how this happens. So, so I think that that's been a positive, but, uh, but yeah, I, I don't exactly know what, what, what to do about it. I guess uh, th- if we can add a dose of humility here, just because someone reads your book doesn't mean that they're, a hundred percent bought in or always going to do the right thing. I think I, I have learned over time that like, you can't, like, I remember I gave, I gave a talk to the Cleveland Browns a few years ago. And uh, I talked about focusing on what you control and not getting distracted by social media. Right. And then I remember is that there's a whole bunch of speculation about how good the Cleveland Browns would be that year. And everything was very exciting. And then the Browns were just like, awful, just like so bad. Um, and I remember at the end of the season, Baker Mayfield gave an interview and he's like, you know what I did wrong this season? I, I didn't focus on what I can control. And, uh, I got too distracted by social media. And it was just a reminder to me that like, just cause you're in the room or just cause your book is on somebody's nightstand doesn't mean they're listening. And it definitely doesn't mean they have any real buy-in to what you're saying, it may take months or years or never happen that, uh, that, that you have like any tangible impact on the decisions or choices they make. So that seems like a, a problem, a modern problem, right? We, we almost, or we definitely incentivize kind of the appearance, the superficial, the slogans and yeah. not, and not the deep work. How, how in your own, like, cause your, your entire work is around, you know, taking these timeless principles and trying to get them instilled in into people today. How do you think about that in your work of like, well, we're superficial over deep. How do we move people towards like deep in action? I mean, I, I just try to focus on it in my own life. I actually, uh, Mark Manson was just in Austin and we, we had lunch and we were talking about, you know, the, both of us write about sort of not caring about, um, you know, these sort of things that are beyond your control or, you know, uh, certain external markers, like we were just talking about earlier in the thing. And then sort of both talking about how, you know, following your own advice is the hardest thing that there is. So I I guess I try to write what I think is true. And I try to write it aimed uh, largely at myself. And I try to get better at it. I try to be an example of the things that I'm talking about. But I guess... Maybe I went through this with my first book, which was sort of supposed to be this sort of expose and became more of a how-to, that at the end of the day, as a creator, you you don't control what people do with what you make. Um, you can try to have it be perceived a certain way. You can aim for a certain kind of impact, but it's not up to you with what people do. And if you go around expecting that because you wrote some brilliant thing, that it's going to change, you know fundamentally change human nature, um, you're probably setting yourself up to be disappointed. Yeah. The, this, this leads me to a question that I have around, um, 
relevance. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Something I know I talked to Steve about, I talked to other people that are in this um, world of, of being authors. And that is like relevance is really addictive. And I'm not talking about fame, like going to fancy parties or kind of having high status, but just being in the discussion, right? You don't have to check your numbers to know that you wrote a book and people are reading it and, and, and it's having some impact. Um, how do you control your own relationship with being relevant? And, um, you know, like in the words of my therapist, like it's good to, it's, it's, it's totally fine to want to be relevant. It's human nature. You shouldn't judge yourself and it's fine until it's not fine. And I guess, how do you define those boundaries, um, and, and, and not let the cart drag the horse or excuse me, the, yeah, the cart drag the horse in that situation. Yeah. I mean. I think relevance is sort of an empty, an empty thing to chase. I mean, look, you want to be in, you want to have influence. You want to be uh, in the room where things happen. You want to be, you know, matter to the people who are doing things. But then uh, to go to what we're talking about, when you realize that, like, you can have all the influence in the world and people are still going to largely do what's in their own self-interest. I think, I think you sort of detach a little bit. Um, you know, you can't, you can't pay your rent with relevance. Um, and, and it's not something you control. I mean, I just think about how many brilliantly important works sat unappreciated for large chunks of time. I, I think if you're trying to, if you're trying to achieve that, I think you're likely to be disappointed. Um, first, because uh, you're unlikely to get it. But second, even the, the people who I think we'd all collectively agree are very relevant, if you ask them how relevant they thought they were, you'd probably hear, um, you know, a pretty self-deprecating answer. I think you'd probably find that they don't think they're nearly as relevant as you might think that they are from the outside. Um, so I just, I don't know, I just, I try, I try not to think about that. I try to focus on doing work that I'm proud of that I think should be relevant. But I guess I don't just sort of I try. I guess I just try not to measure that. And that kind of relates to what you talk about in Courage, right? Or uh, relates a lot of. But it seems like your life is set up and correct me if, you're, if I'm wrong here. I'm just making assumptions. But it seems like your life is set up where like the small actions add up. Right. Yeah. You're 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 making sure that like you're doing the things on the day to day basis to, give, you know, to secure, protect you from losing yourself on the Internet for going down the wrong motivations, drives, etc. But that's also what you talk about a lot in encourages calling on what allows you to have courage. Right. It's it's not the the big major things. It's it's the small decisions that that make a difference. Yeah. I mean, look, from a courage perspective, like if you almost everyone who's done something really important or meaningful was not fully appreciated for that in the moment they were trying to do it. And in fact, it's usually the opposite, right? Like they were widely criticized for it, loathed, attacked, maybe suffered sort of real 
uh, financial or even physical consequences for this thing that they were doing. And so I, to me, the, the takeaway from that is like, if you're doing this thing to be liked, uh, you will not do good work. You, you have to cultivate a sort of a bubble around yourself or some, uh, I, I heard this good quote, I think it's from the poet William Stafford. He says like, if you care about what other people think you are worthless as a compass. The point is like, you're supposed to be um, rooted or attracted to something sort of less ephemeral than what other people are doing or saying. And that is what by definition makes you a leader, makes you worth following. If, if, if you're actually being pinged back and forth and distracted and misled by all this other stuff, um, you, you are taking away your uh, value as a trailblazer, a pioneer, a tastemaker, a leader, you know, an independent thinker. Um, and so I think you, this, one of the reasons I sort of live where I live, I run my life the way that I do is that I, I want to be thinking about and sort of, uh, navigating off not what everyone else is doing. It, you know, it reminds me of a conversation I had again, decade, about a decade ago with, uh, good friend and fellow author, David Epstein, who was uh, part of this whistleblowing experience that I had. And he told me at the beginning, he's like, just be clear, the, the whistleblower is never the one who is rewarded. It can yes. create change, but not it's not going to create change for you. I had Alexander Vindman uh, on my podcast a, a couple months ago, and uh, I wrote an email uh, about, about him more recently, too. And, and it was very illustrative to me. It was one, I think, you know, is a deeply heroic and brave whistleblower, but it was amazing. The number of people I got emails from in the armed forces attacking him. Right. And it was very clear to me that it was motivated by a certain professional jealousy. They all mentioned his book deals and all. And it was just it, any experience I've had with whistleblowers um, with people who have filed lawsuits, et cetera, it's that you are not appreciated for what you did. And in fact, you may end up largely punished for what you're doing, even if you are later vindicated and celebrated for that thing. So if, you know, I, I agree completely. Um, but if the, the kind of societal pushes are against that, let's say that's an act of courage. How do we get to a place where we're, we feel free to perform, free to play to win, to not play that like prevent, protect? Like what's, what's, the, what's the thing that, that pushes us over that edge to kind of give us that, that courage to, um, to do things that are against our personal kind of um, incentives? Yeah, there's that, there's that expression. It's very hard to get a person to do something uh, that they're, or it's very hard to get a person to understand something that their salary depends on them not understanding. Uh, Never heard that. That's so that's so great. <laughs> it's from yeah, it's from Upton Sinclair, and it it is true. You wonder why people can't see it, and it's like, well, if they saw it, they would have to do something about it, right? And so there's the, the mind is very good, just in the way that the mind is very good at not wanting to admit you were wrong or not wanting to accept challenges to your identity or your sense of self-worth. Um, you could understand why evolutionarily or, or even just sort of in a capitalistic society, 
people don't come to a lot of conclusions that threaten their livelihood or their reputation, right? And so um, I think that is one reason not to think about that. Like, like, look, so I send out this email every day for Daily Stoic. Um, you know, it started with a few thousand people and it's now, you know, going on to 400,000 people who get this email every morning. One of the things I had to do um, is set, like people can reply to the email because that's how email marketing works, right? I had to make sure this goes to like a thing that I don't check and effectively no one checks because I wanted to be in a place where I wrote what I thought was important or true and whether people loved it or hated it, I was not aware because um, that would interfere with my ability to have my own compass, right? Like it, you do not want to know what is driving unsubscribes to your email list if, you, if those things are precisely the things that you, you know, enjoy writing or are ethically or morally obligated to write. You don't want to know what it's costing you. You just want like, just like I think if you went to, to some of these whistleblowers and said, look, I have a crystal ball. Here's what this is going to cost you. I imagine a lot of them might not do it, right? And so there has to be almost a kind of a deliberate ignorance of the consequences um, to go, or, or a bubble as we're talking about, because the bubble is um, what allows you to do the right thing as opposed to the expedient or the easy or the, you know, uh, you know, celebrated thing. Steve, if you could rewind 10 years to what, 24, 25 year old Steve, and you see cheating at the Oregon project in Nike, and you know, everything that you went through over the last 10 years, which like I've been honored to bear witness to for the last six some pretty shitty stuff. Would you have done it? No, I, I think Ryan is 100% correct here. I mean, if if I knew every single thing, I'm not sure I would, right? That that ignorance is helpful because that clears the way for you to, for almost that like motivation drive based on like values or what's right to like tilt in the right direction where you just kind of say, you reach that moment where you're just like, F it, this isn't right. Let's, let's go forward. If you knew everything that was going to happen, I'm not sure that you make that decision because then you go into like logical analysis of, is this worth it for me? When in the moment you're often thinking, okay, values, ethics, like bigger picture, this isn't right. And that's what pushes you over the top. Yeah. Um, all right, Ryan, one more big topic to wrestle with before we, we come to an end here. Um, motivation and your own personal motivation. So from the outside looking in, you know, you're quote unquote successful in the sense that whatever you write is going to sell copies. Yet it seems like you're still pushing YouTube videos, TikTok, um, opening up this bookstore, which feels a little bit different because that feels more like a labor of love. I'll, I'll let you explain how you see it. But like, what motivates you to keep pushing hard and growing? Why not just sit with whatever platform you already have, even shrink them, 
You know, maybe you just say, hey, I just really like writing my email. I'm, I'm, I'm going to forget about all the other stuff. Um, yeah. What's behind that? I mean, I, th- I would I would classify all of it as a labor of love. Like I, I genuinely enjoy doing it. There's very little that I do that I don't enjoy doing. And if I don't enjoy doing it, I try to find out if it's really component parts of it that I don't enjoy doing. And how can I find uh, a way to do it where I only do the parts that I like and I've sort of outsourced the other parts. So like, I like shooting the videos. I don't like anything else related to it. So I'm not involved in anything else related to it. Um, But I I mean, I'm genuinely passionate and uh, excited about the ideas that I talk about and the challenge of tackling things. So, I mean, writing is the thing that I love to do. And that's the engine uh, from which all the other stuff is created anyway. So videos or, or uh, emails or whatever, it's, it's, it's largely, you know, snippets of, or the byproduct of the thing that I really love doing, which is, which is writing. I love writing books. That's like the thing I feel like I was meant to do that I'm very excited to do that I get a lot of meaning and, and happiness from. So, so I do that and it drives the other stuff. Like I don't really have like a certain amount of books that I'm trying to write or a certain amount of books that I'm trying to sell. It's the, the process of writing every day creates as a byproduct, all this other stuff. Mm, that's fascinating. And then, you know, Brad mentioned opening up a, a bookstore, which you did in Bastrop, which is small town outside yes. of Austin. It, like Between how- Austin and Houston. Yep, exactly. Yes. Driven through there many times. Um, so how does that fit into this? Because some people might say like, Ryan, like you're on TikTok, you're doing all these progressive things. And then you go open up a, a bookstore in a small town, which an independent bookstore when, you know, people say, well, everyone's buying on Amazon, death of independent bookstores, et cetera. What, what's your pr- thinking process behind that? Uh, I mean, I think I think a big part of it was just wanting to do something sort of real and at a much smaller scale than I was used to doing stuff like um, and and that seemed like a fun challenge and it's sort of an interesting experience. But it was also uh, sort of um, a byproduct of some other decisions that I needed to make. I needed like an office to run uh, my stuff out of. Uh, my wife wanted me to get all this crap out of our house. Uh, and and so part of it was like, okay, I wanted some office space. And then, oh, I needed a place to sort of shoot some of these videos. Oh, you know, this is the small town in which we live. And this store, the storefront is available. And, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if this town had a bookstore? So it's kind of a bunch of things coming together that I we sort of took a flyer on, like, I mean, we had no idea whether it would work or not. And it actually has come together in a way that I think has made it easier for me to do some of the stuff that I'm, that I was already doing. Um, And it's just been a wonderful, you know, experience being a part of a community and sort of positively contributing to that community that like, that's been the real reward for it. It was much less a sort of a financial thing than a, than a sort of a community driven thing. Um, but then the, the final sort of weird byproduct was of it was that it really gave me some insights into sort of publishing that I didn't understand. And I think has made me a better sort of writer and author on top of that. Do you want to share like one to two of those insights? 
Well, just really seeing um, how, like, how inefficient the industry is as far as like uh, even just like getting books on trucks to people and, and even realizing like, okay, so people go, you know, you should support uh, independent retailers uh, instead of uh, Amazon, um, which I, I, I would agree with at the same time, realizing that, you know, the vast majority of bookstores, independent bookstores just buy their books from a third party distributor called Ingram which is itself a multi-billion dollar, you know, uh, behemoth. It sort of takes some of the glamour out of like uh, the argument that you're sort of supporting these like small businesses. You're basically supporting a middleman between you and a large business. So just, you know, deciding like, hey, we're going to do this differently. We're going to buy the books largely uh, direct from the publishers. We're going to only carry a sort of small handful of books uh, that we really get behind. Um, you know, it just it just gave me some insights into things that I'd sort of bumped up against. Uh, here's another thing. You probably experienced this on your books. You'll get feedback about like the sales staff. The sales staff says X, Y, or Z about your title or your cover. Um, you know, they're talking to the accounts and here's what the accounts say or whatever, right? Well, now I am an account, right? Like I am a bookstore that buys thousands and thousands of books. Um, I have not heard from a single person at a single sales staff about a single title, like, you know, um, and sort of realizing like, oh, just how on your own you are as an author that um, you got to do what you think is right, what you think the audience needs to hear, what aligns with your creative vision. And if you're doing it because someone else claims that it will make their job easier you better be damn sure that that job actually moves the needle for what you're trying to do in any way. Love it. So um, let's close with your top three books of uh, the last year that you carry at the Painted Porch. We'll include uh, links in the show notes, such a big part of what you do is reading. Um, and clearly like you're just all in on publishing in the best way. So yeah. What were three books that you read this last year that folks can support the painted porch by picking up, uh, obviously in addition to courage is calling your book. Oh, that's very nice. Um, you know, I really liked, uh, Clint Smith's book, um, how the word is passed. Um, it was one of my favorite books that I read in the last year. Um, actually, um, uh, uh, Thomas Ricks came by the bookstore a couple days ago. Uh, he wrote this, uh, this book called First Principles, which I loved uh, about sort of the philosophy that influenced the, the founding fathers. Um, and then what, do I, what would I also recommend? Um, I don't think we carry it yet, but I just read uh, The Chancellor by Katie Martin about... Um, about uh, Angela Merkel, which I also really liked. Uh, so that would be that would be three books I read this year that I that I very much recommend. Love it. Well, just want to thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. Um, you know, I can say that I've met a lot of authors and a lot of people that in their work come off one way, and then you get to know them better, and you realize that that's not actually who they are. And um, I'm just always 
so glad to talk to you because you are not that. Um, for those oh, that are listening nice. and are wondering, like, you know, is Ryan the real deal or is he just a really good marketer? Uh, the answer is, you know, you're the real deal. I feel really fortunate that I've gotten to know you somewhat well over the past few years. Um, and it's really refreshing to see someone who truly does strive to practice what they preach and, and has skin in the game. Oh, man, I appreciate that. Well, thank you both. All right, folks, we told you that would be a good one. And um, we were right. What a dandy. Ryan, real good, genuine dude. Clearly so smart, sharp, thoughtful, well-read. If you like the conversation, again, Ryan's new book is Courage is Calling. And if you want to support what we're doing here with the podcast, help us stay sponsorship-free head over to our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation. And um, we'll catch you guys next week with a very special podcast that we've been withholding until the end of the year because um, we didn't want to offend people around Thanksgiving, but I guess heading into Christmas and Hanukkah, whatever, December holiday you celebrate, uh, we thought that it would be okay. So next week, we're going to talk about fundamentals, not fluff. You can kind of think of it as a Brad, Steve, growth EQ manifesto, the kind of stuff that you can send to your crazy uncle at Thanksgiving that uh, is obsessing, not about politics, but in our world about his sleep score, readiness, recovery, and whatever stuff the device on his wrist might be telling him about his life. So if you're sick about hearing, you know, on someone's ketogenic diet, sleep score, intermittent fasting, uh, gluten this, gluten-free that lifestyle, well, you're going to get a kick out of next week's podcast. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.